0: As we come to uh, the end of our uh, little walk through uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, this uh, letter um, written by one of the very earliest Christians, Paul, to the group of Christians who are in the church of uh, Thessalonica. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of Scripture. Thank you for these words that carry such power as you speak to us by your spirit through what was written all those years ago. We pray that you'd open up our hearts and minds to hear you, uh, that you would open our wills to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I don't know whether you've ever been to one of those um, either uh, films or plays that feels like it's building up to a sort of tremendous sort of crashing crescendo and then just sort of fizzles out. Um, it feels like it's got this great big ending coming, a big sort of so what, and then it just sort of dribbles away um, into its ending. There's something about the sort of feel of what Paul writes here that feels a little bit like a letdown. In the words that Fee was reading for us, there's this big sort of crescendo of noise and excitement about the end of all things. I mean, You couldn't be thinking about a bigger sort of subject Uh, to finish off this letter. He's writing about the time when God will draw a line under history, will put all things right. There'll be a sense of the end of all things and the beginning of something else. And as there is this big build-up, he finishes with, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Huh? You're sort of expecting something bigger, aren't you? You're expecting something sort um, sort of more dramatic, something sort of punchier. You know, if you were talking about where are you going to land your talk, or where are you going to land your letter, or where are you going to land your film, you don't sort of end it up with an exhortation to encouragement. Surely you sort of finish with an exhortation to, I don't know, uh, sacrificial, life-giving martyrdom, or something huge and scary. Why encouragement? Why just building each other up. I, on our list of sort of virtues, on our list of things that we admire other people for, on our list of things that we build statues to people about, encouragement doesn't sort of come in the top 20, let alone the top 10 or the top five. If somebody says to you, do you know what I so love about you? You're thinking, oh, this is good. This is good. No, no, do tell. I, do you know the thing that I absolutely do? I've always loved this about you. It, this app, I admire it so much, I want to emulate it so much I really think you are just such and you're thinking an encourager it doesn't feel like a big thing does it? and yet for Paul as he writes this letter, in the light of what's to come the thing that he most wants them to do is to encourage one another to build one another up, I wonder why Well, I want to suggest that it has to do with just how difficult it is to live as children of the light in a world that is dominated by darkness, to use the metaphor, the the picture language that he uses here, or to put it a different way, again, using the language that he uses here, how difficult it is to, according to verse 8, to put on faith, to put on love, and to live in hope. Faith, hope, and love. In the world in which we live, it is increasingly hard, we feel, to live a life of faith when faith can end up being derided as simply a childish superstition, to use Dawkins' phrase akin to believing in fairies at the bottom of the garden. It can be very, very hard to live a life of hope that doesn't feel like a childish sort of never, never land in the face of power and lies and what feels like the triumph of evil. It can be really hard to live a life of love when living a life of love feels like it's likely to be the recipe for being trampled on, overlooked, done over. Faith in a faithless world, hope in what feels increasingly at times like a hopeless world, love in a world in which love looks like it makes you weak, like you're going to get run over. How are we to live with faith and hope and love? We need encouragement. We need to be built up. We need one another to keep each other going. So how are we to do it? What is it that Paul writes here that is going to help us to keep going? Well, one of the ways of keeping going is simply to ask the question, how long have I got to wait? How long is it going to take? Um, I don't know whether any of if you're a parent, I don't know whether any of your children hated having haircuts um, I know at least one child, um, not actually either of my as it happens, but I do know at least one child for whom going to the hairdresser or the barber was way, way, way over the top, further um, off their list of things they wanted to do than going to the dentist or anything like that. It was the thing they were terrified of. And the only thing they could ask when they were sitting in that, in that chair having their hair cut was, how long is it going to take? How long have I got to wait? When's it going to be over? Or like me on a roller coaster ride... All I want to know is how long have I got to hold on for? How much longer is there? How much have I got to wait? Or to take a much more serious turn, and maybe more appropriate to what Paul's writing here, when you're in the midst of a really difficult period of life, a period of life you just wish was over, all you want to ask is how much longer? What day is it going to end? How many hours left? But Paul wants to say to his readers... Look, if you want to live a life of faith and hope and love, the question that is useless to ask is, how much longer? Because that's not the point. Verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, he's picking up their language that Jesus uses. When Jesus talks about the end of all things, he says to his listeners back in Mark Um, chapter 13, he says to them, "The, the end of things is going to come like a thief in the night. In other words, you're not going to know when it's coming. He actually says of himself, even I don't know the day and the time when God is going to draw a line under all things and put an end to all things and begin afresh. So the question to ask that will encourage us, that will keep us going, that will help us live a life of faith and love and of hope is not, when's it all going to end? The question is rather different. The question is how to live now in the light of what is to come. See, Paul is convinced that there are two basic approaches to life. One approach has us living in what he, the the pitch language he uses is living in darkness, where faith and hope and love are incredibly difficult to sustain. And the other approach is living in light. And the difference between them is not that some people know when the end of all things will come and some people don't. It's that some people live knowing that there will come an end and a new beginning. And some people live as if there's not going to be. The contrast is there in that first part of the passage. Um, So you've got um, verse 2. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's what you know. You know... That there will come a day. Verse 4. You, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so this day should surprise you like a thief, for you are children of the light. That's one way to live. You live knowing there will come a day when God will draw a line under history, when God will put all things right, when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. You know that. But there is a different way to live. It's there in verse 3. It's sort of sandwiched, as, it, as, as you like, between verse 2 and verse 4. Other people are saying, peace and safety. Now, again, those seem fairly weak words, but actually in the context in which Paul wrote, peace and safety was a bit of a catchphrase. You'd have immediately recognized it if you were hearing this uh, letter or this book read out, because peace and safety was what the Romans said when they wanted to describe what the emperor achieved wherever he went. Peace and safety was the strapline for the Roman Empire. Peace and safety was what you got when you bought in to the empire's rule. Peace and safety was what you got when the emperor rolled in with his troops and put you underneath the boot of his soldiers. Peace and safety was the promise and what they guaranteed to deliver in the Roman Empire. Peace and safety. Peace meant order, a way of doing things under Roman rule, Roman law, Roman sort of uh, uh, structures of society, Safety was what you got because of the might of the Roman Empire, because of the might of the Roman garrisons, because of the might of the Roman soldiers. Peace and safety. And to those who were in the time when Paul was writing this letter, it really did look like that was a good guarantee, a good promise. I mean, if you were of a minority group, if you were of a particular religion, particularly if you were Jewish, there were many reasons to fear the Roman emperor. And to fear the Roman Empire. But there was no denying, it seemed, that it was a very strong, secure, solid, and within its own borders, peaceful empire. I mean, at least you knew one thing in life the Romans were here, and they were going to be here forever if there was ever an empire that wasn't going to fail, it was the Roman Empire. If there was ever an empire that delivered on its promise of peace and safety, it was the Roman Empire. You knew, didn't you, that they were still going to be here in 100 years' time, 500 years' time, 1,000 years' time. Of course, with the hindsight that history gives, we know that wasn't true. With the perspective that 2,000 years gives us, we know that the Roman Empire in global and historical terms, was comparatively a a blink of the eye. That it was strong while it lasted, it had incredible reach while it lasted, but it didn't last forever. In fact, it wasn't long after Paul wrote these words that it began to experience turbulence. The first cracks begin to appear. Peace and safety. You see, you can go through life looking for all the reasons why everything's okay looking for as many reasons as possible not to think about the future, not to think about the end. We could personalise it and say there are lots of reasons not to think about one's own end. We focus on our health. We focus on our longevity. If you're in middle age like me, you think about, well, you know, I'm only halfway through life. I had my birthday this week, and I keep telling people I'm halfway to 96. You're all sitting there doing the maths now, aren't you? Um, but it's quite a nice feeling so I think I'm halfway that's fine I've only lived half my life plenty of time to go even at the same time in the back of your head you're thinking i hope maybe if i'm lucky but there are lots of reasons not to think about our own end our own future and even more reasons not to think about the end of all things but paul wants to say to them if you live that way your own end and or the end of all things will then come as an unwelcome shock. An unwelcome shock. It will come uh, like a thing of destruction. It will come like unexpected labor pains. Now, that's an odd phrase, unexpected labor pains. Every now and again, about sort of once a year, somewhere somewhere in one of the newspapers or on the BBC website, on some news organization, picks up a story about a young woman, usually a, a, a young woman, who unexpectedly goes into labor, who didn't even realize that she was pregnant. And they usually pick that up as a way of going, really? How can you not know? But actually setting aside that rather sort of, I I think, unpleasantly judgmental way of looking at it, if you didn't know that you were expecting and you went into labor, that's the sense that Paul has here. If you didn't know, then you wouldn't know what those feelings were, what those contractions were, what the pain was about. You would have no sense of where it was heading. You would have nothing to get you through, if you like, to the purpose of it all. So what Paul is saying here is there are these two approaches to life, one of which goes, no, 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 It's all fine. It's all fine. I'm not going to think about my end or the end of all things. But he says if you live like that, you're in for a nasty shock. Alternatively, he says, you can live now in the light of what's to come. Verse 4, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light, children of the day. In other words, you belong to the life of the world to come, so it shouldn't surprise you that it's coming. You have a taste of what's to come, therefore it shouldn't surprise you when it begins. Two approaches to life, and those two approaches to life lead to two different ways of living. Two approaches, if you like, lead to two lifestyles. Verse 6, so then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled. So to begin with, he lays out what it looks like to live a life where we're, not, where we're trying not to think about the future, where we're trying not to live life in the, the light of our end or the end of all things. And he says what it looks like, to use some picture language, is either being asleep or being drunk. And what both of those metaphors have in common is a sense of not being ready. I don't know whether you've ever overslept your alarm for something really important that sense of being woken out of a deep sleep with that gut-wrenching panic of, "Ah, I'm not ready, and I'm not going to be ready. It doesn't matter how fast I have a shower, how fast to put my clothes on, how fast to clean my teeth. I am simply not going to be out of that door ready for that thing that I meant to have been awake for. He wants us to get that sense of horror of not being ready or of being drunk versus being sober. If somebody is drunk under the influence of alcohol, they're not ready for whatever comes. All they're ready for is being drunk. There is no sense of anticipation of what's to come. You only go to sleep and you only get drunk if you have no expectation that the thing about to happen is something you have to be ready for. Otherwise, you would do neither of those things. If if it's 10 o'clock at night and something incredibly life-changingly important, is happening at half past 10, you don't go to bed. You don't go to sleep. Paul says these two approaches to life lead to two different lifestyles. On the one hand, if we're going to live life trying to pretend that we're never going to have an end, if we're going to live life as if God is never going to draw a line under all things and say, that's it, we're done. New heaven new earth, then we're going to live a life that is like being asleep or that's like being drunk, that never has any sense of the future and has no sense of living now for what's to come. But, says Paul, you aren't to be like that. Why not? Verse 10, because Jesus has died for you so that whether you are physically awake or physically asleep, changing the metaphor, we might live together with him. Jesus has already gone through death, our end, and the end of all things to the life of the world to come. Jesus has already done that. He's anticipated it. He's prefigured it. He's gone ahead of us. And because of that, you and I are guaranteed that future. You and I are guaranteed that future of faith and hope and love. And so, says Paul, live now in the light of what Jesus has given you. Live now in the light of that faith that is a gift of God for you. Live now in the light of the hope that is certain because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Live now in the light of the life of love Jesus lived for you and the gift of love he's placed in you. Verse 8. Since we belong... To the day. Let us be self controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. He uses the language of armor, which sounds a bit strange to us. What he's simply saying is it's really hard, isn't it? It is really hard to live a life of faith in a culture and society that says that faith is for children. It is really hard, isn't it, to live a life of hope. In a culture that says if you think too much about the future, you pretty much lose hope. So just don't think about it. It's really hard, isn't it, to live a life of love in a culture that shows us daily what happens to those who love. They end up looking foolish. They end up being mashed. They end up being trampled. They don't get their way. They don't make it on in business or in life. Faith and hope and love, our way of anticipating what's to come, our way of living now in the light of the future, our way of living a life in the light, a life that is awake, that is sober, that is hope-filled. Two approaches to life, two ways to live. I wonder what my life, I wonder what your life looks like. Are we living metaphorically with our fingers in our ears happy, humming a happy tune trying not to think of the future are we living a life that is effectively asleep or to all the intents and purposes as if we were drunk or are we living a life now in the light of what is to come that which we've already tasted that which we've already begun to have a sense of that which has begun to work in us a life of faith and hope and love And so, says Paul, if that's the way we're going to live, that gives us a reason, a motivation, and an ability to encourage one another, to build one another up. Because it's really hard to live that way. It's really difficult. We need one another's encouragement. We need to build one another up, to keep one another going. When life is hard, when life is tough, one of the many things that I have always loved about all souls and continue to love about all souls is the way in which people rally around one another when life is hard, when life is tough, when people that we love are ill or when we ourselves are going through hard times. People are really good at rallying around one another, encouraging one another, building one another up. But what Paul is writing about here includes that and is even more. He wants us not simply to build one another up when the physical stuff of life is hard, but to be really proactive in building one another up in our faith. To not only be cooking one another meals, taking other kids to school, making sure everything's sorted at home, but alongside that vital core stuff, also be looking to build one another's faith up. And the problem with that is that we're pretty nervous about ever talking about faith, aren't we? I mean, I, I get to do it for a living, so nobody particularly bats an eyelid when a vicar says, you know, how you doing? You know, has, you know, has prayer going? You know, you and God Okay. You know, there's a bit of a wince that happens when I do it, but I get away with it because I'm a vicar. I get paid to ask those sorts of awkward questions. But I can almost guarantee that, you're going to feel very self-conscious now, but I can almost guarantee that the conversations that happen immediately after the service or over the lunch table when you get home aren't going to be those sorts of questions. Because faith is something we keep privately to ourselves. It feels quite, you know, uh, incredibly sort of prying and 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 inappropriate to ask how somebody's getting on with God. But actually, unless we talk about it, we're never going to be in a place to build one another up, are we? To encourage one another. Talking about our own faith, the things that we find hard, the things that we find encouraging, the things that have really helped us. It might be that there's something that I've said this morning that you're going to be able to take and and hand on to somebody as a way of encouragement. It might be that you're using these um, Live Lent booklets and there's something you read over the last couple of days that really grabbed your heart or that really built you up and you can pass it on to somebody. It might be that you've noticed that actually somebody who's usually here Sunday by Sunday you haven't seen for a little bit, you're going to give them a ring and say, are you okay? I haven't seen you around for a little bit. Is everything all right? If the future is coming, if there is an end and a new beginning, If it's really hard to live a life of faith and hope and love, then we have to be a bit proactive. We have to get on the front foot with encouraging one another, building one another up. Otherwise, as little individuals, it gradually gets corroded away. I wonder this week how you might encourage a brother or sister in Christ, how you might help build somebody up. might be your own child. might be a friend, a spouse, a partner. I wonder how God might use you today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that because you lived and died and rose again for us, there is a certainty about the life of the world to come. Thank you that there will come that day when you draw a line under history, when you put all things right when every wrong is righted, when every tear is wiped away, when there will be no more death or dying or sickness or loneliness or pain. We pray that you would help us to live life in the light of your coming, to live as children of the light, not as the darkness, to live certain of what's to come. And as we do so, we pray that you would build us up in a life of faith and hope and love. And we pray even today, even this week, that you'd use us to build one another up, to encourage one another in that life of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.